Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, all around Australia today, people are filling up their cars to beat the 25 cents a litre price rise when the fuel rebate, otherwise known as a tax, is reintroduced tomorrow. Other people are looking at sky-high power bills and wondering how in a country as rich in resources as Australia, the price of basic electricity can be so extortionately high. Others are wondering how high interest rates will go and panicking about whether they will need to sell the family home one day. On a more cultural level, some people worry, for very good reason, if the new national school curriculum will teach their kids to hate Australia and lose faith in the nation's future. These are all problems that are, in one way or another, influenced by the federal government and affect our daily lives. But the federal government is instead distracted by, among other things, a federal corruption watchdog. Why is this? The answer isn't pretty. A government that doesn't have the solutions to everyday problems is naturally going to instead look for solutions to imaginary ones merely to make it look like it's doing something. And the logic is irrefutable. As the then opposition leader Anthony Albanese tweeted on July 26 last year, if you want to end the corruption at the national level, you need a national anti-corruption commission. Labor will deliver one. Albo elaborated in a policy statement that there was an ever-growing list of scandals surrounding the Morrison government and, quote, Liberals deny there is a problem, make endless excuses and have put forward a draft bill for a commission designed to be so weak, so secretive and so lacking in independence that instead of exposing corruption, it will cover it up, unquote. Again, this isn't going to help you pay the extra 25 cents a litre for petrol from tomorrow or help you afford the power bills being jacked up by Albo's obsession with net zero and renewable energy. If Albo is so sure that corruption is rife within the federal government, then let him provide the evidence to the federal police who can then investigate and have the accused face court. 
What's so wrong with our existing criminal justice system that requires yet another layer of, in, of investigation and extrajudicial trials? As it stands, the proposal for a federal corruption tribunal is, if you'll pardon the pun, a watchdog's breakfast. It has been put together by Attorney General Mark Dreyfus and approved by Labor's caucus, but already he's put the Senate crossbenchers offside and he needs to get them back onside if he wants to get it through Parliament. The crossbenchers are not happy that the proposed watchdog's hearings will be mostly held in private. Green's Justice spokesman David Shoebridge said the plan to hear cases in private has, quote, all the hallmarks of a side deal between Labor and the coalition designed to shield politicians and their powerful friends from public scrutiny, unquote. Shoebridge is blithely ignoring the reputations of innocent people that have been thoroughly trashed in the public hearings of the New South Wales equivalent, the Independent Commission Against Corruption. These watchdogs have extraordinary power but often investigate behaviour that is not necessarily criminal. As Chris Merritt explained in The Australian Today, the federal watchdog would incorporate the quote-unquote could test when deciding cases to investigate. The could test is where the conduct could adversely affect a bureaucrat's or politician's honesty or impartiality. Says Merritt, quote, that's a bit like empowering traffic police to find those who could have exceeded the speed limit or cracking down on motorists because they could have had too much to drink. This is the rubbish that is occupying the finest minds of our national parliament, while us people in the real world face more tangible problems like fuel and energy prices and the work indoctrination of kids in schools. Unless we fight back against this, it will only get worse. This is the age of winner takes all in politics. These days we have fewer politicians who serve and more politicians who are born to rule, partly because they couldn't get a job in the real world. In such a political environment, corruption, corruption watchdogs and investigators inevitably get filled with partisan hacks who simply become an extension of parliamentary politics. If you wonder how bad this can get, look at the United States. Donald Trump and dozens of his associates are being routinely raided by the FBI and Department of Justice over imaginary charges. The intention is clearly to either intimidate or besmirch them as crooks. Meanwhile, the same investigation bureaus ignore substantial evidence of President Joe Biden and his family's corrupt business dealings in Ukraine and China, Hunter Biden's rampant drug use, Nancy Pelosi's insider trading, the fraudulent Russia collusion hoax, which actually involved the FBI itself, and the disappearance of 30,000 of Hillary Clinton's emails from a private server. It's highly likely that if a federal watchdog is ever created in Australia, it will evolve like all things do in federal parliament. It will become prey to the internal tensions of party politics and power struggles within the bureaucracy. In other words, it will do little to improve the lives of you and I, other than provide supposedly entertaining show trials involving potentially innocent people. 
As Albo said to, co to the coalition's Scott Morrison during the election campaign in May, quote, why do you fear an anti-corruption commission? What is it you're afraid they will find? Unquote. To which you and I might reply, why do you want an anti-corruption commission, Albo? What other more difficult problems will it, will it distract you from? If Albo was as in touch with the punters as he thinks he is, he'd know this is not the topic people are worried about down the pub or at the dinner table. The corruption watchdog is nothing but a distracting sideshow and the punters know it. Queensland Senator Matt Canavan tabled a private members bill this afternoon that hopefully pushed Australia one tiny step closer to becoming nuclear powered. Before I get him on to discuss it, let's have a quick look at the state of nuclear power across the world. According to the website World Nuclear, quote, around 10% of the world's electricity is generated by about 440 nuclear powered reactors. About 55 more reactors are under construction in 15 countries and about, that is about 15% of existing capacity, unquote. The biggest producer is the United States with 778 terawatt hours a year. That's what they produce. To put that in the Australian context, we use 266 terawatt hours, roughly a third of what the US produces from nuclear alone. China and France also produce more nuclear than Australia consumes. Yet Australia is sitting on a third of the world's known reserves of uranium. Nuclear energy's decades of safe operation should have been confirmed when a tidal wave hit the Fukushima plant in Japan in 2011, uh, and the wave, but the wave failed to cause a meltdown and nobody died. But people around the world panicked anyway, and Germany especially hit the panic button and uh, started to decommission its nuclear energy. It's now in deep trouble. Uh, trying to recommission coal and gas-powered uh, gas, uh, energy and trying to switch on um, solar power and uh, windmills, of course. Uh, now, this winter, the millions of Germans who won't be able to afford heating have been advised to gather in communal warming rooms. Germany isn't alone. The entire European continent is learning the folly of being reliant on foreign suppliers to fire up their power plants. Yet this is exactly the road Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and Energy Minister Chris Bowen are taking us. But not if Queensland Senator Matt Canavan can help it. Let's get him on to discuss it. Matt, welcome. Good afternoon, Fred. How are you, mate? Good, good. Just quickly, um, before we get into the nuclear issue, there was some uh, late-breaking news this afternoon. Uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk reckons they're going to have 70% renewables by 2032. What's your take on that? Well, Fred, it's worked so well in Europe, why wouldn't we try it here ourselves? This is gobsmackingly incompetent uh, at a time where we can all see that European uh, people will be freezing this winter. Uh, some people will die because of the energy incompetence uh, we've seen right across Europe. They've shut down their coal-fired power stations. Some countries like Germany, as you said, have also decommissioned their nuclear power plants. they become reliant on weather-dependent renewable energy, exactly what Anastasia Palaszczuk wants to do, and people are dying because of it. As I say, it's gobsmackingly incompetent because we can see all that. Maybe you could give the German Greens Party a leave pass because they were the first to try it and didn't see any other real-world examples. Well, there's no such excuse for the Queensland Labor Party because the, the, the experiment uh, with renewable energy has been tried and has failed and failed spectacularly. We have to turn around from this approach. 
yeah, those European countries, they've only got 50% uh, nuclear power, uh, 50% renewable energy, sorry, and we want to go to 70%. It's going to be much, much worse. Fred, I'm going to have to go, mate, or because of the, the the bells are ringing. Oh, the bells um, are ringing. But okay. uh, yeah, but maybe I can I can give you another two minutes. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, quickly tell us about your bill, your private members' bill. Well, uh, Fred, this is this is an attempt to overturn the ban. We had a ban put in place in 1998. It was a political trade-off uh, to get the uh, Lucas Heights reactor, the nuclear medicine reactor, there upgraded, and then Howard Governor needs some support in the Senate, so agreed to ban nuclear energy uh, to get that through. And it, it didn't think the ban was all that much at the time because there was no prospects of building nuclear. We had lots of coal and gas power plants. But now we're left with this legacy of being the only large developed country in the world that has a legislative ban on nuclear energy. And what was a 30-minute debate in the Senate in 1998 could now have generations of costs for Australians if we keep this ban in place. Nuclear technology is developing rapidly around the world. And uh, we should uh, have a have a... Uh, a legal system, a laws, a set of laws that allows us to at least consider these options. So my bill, also sponsored by another eight coalition senators, uh, is the largest ever parliamentary support uh, to overturn this ban in 24 years. Momentum is building uh, to reconsider nuclear energy and uh, we just need the support of your viewers and others to keep this push up and make a change to our laws. Matt, thank you so much for your time. You've got a, you've, you've got a rush back into the Senate chamber, so we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. No worries, Fred. Sorry about that. Thanks very much, mate. Pleasure. That's okay. Catch you, catch you next time. All right. See you, mate. See you. That's Matt Canavan, who is one of the lone voices in Parliament, uh, explaining that nuclear energy is probably the most viable option for Australia avoiding the catastrophe that's happening in Europe this winter. Matt's also going to be speaking at the CPAC uh, conference this weekend in Sydney. To get tickets, go to cpac.network or watch it live right here on ADH TV. Well, it's with a heavy heart that I bring tonight's Woke Watch segment straight from the pages of British GQ magazine. GQ evolved from an American fashion trade magazine into Gentleman's Quarterly in 1958, and international editions began sprouting up in the 1990s. The British version, under legendary editors James Brown and Dylan Jones, was arguably the best, bringing British erudition and humour to an already ridiculously sophisticated masthead. It even hired Boris Johnson as its car reviewer, who was famous for parking borrowed new sports cars outside Scotland Yard and watching them accumulate parking tickets that the magazine would need to pay. I worked for the Australian edition in the late 1990s and it was about as good as a job in journalism could be. GQ back then was a rare blend of urban style and, in Australia at least, a shameless celebration of reckless masculine adventure. But those were different times. GQ has since changed too, and it is my sombre obligation this evening to explain it hasn't changed for the better. The pages that my GQ colleagues and I once filled with stories about footballers, supermodels, Fast cars and expensive bourbons now contain stories whining about the homophobia of TV scriptwriters. That's right, there's no gay in Game of Thrones. 
declared writer Jack King in British GQ this week. King's lengthy article whined about the speed with which one of two gay characters in the Game of Thrones offshoot House of Dragon is dispatched in a gruesome murder. Apparently his lover does it to prove that he's not actually gay, which I'm happy to report wasn't a problem for anyone when I was at GQ. Aren't we lucky that we live in a world where that kind of homophobia is now merely fiction? But even fiction is real these days, as King so eagerly reminds us. He says, quote, Thrones treatment of gays has been a long-standing point of debate, unquote. Really? Who knew? The G in GQ used to stand for gentlemen. I don't know what it stands for now. Well, let's bring in Stephen Senatiampo, the breakfast announcer on Canberra's 2CC radio station, to discuss the Federal Corruption Commission that I talked about earlier and all the other news that's getting the punters talking this week. Stephen, welcome. Good evening, Fred. Good to be with you. Stephen, this proposed Federal Corruption Commission seems to me to be a thoroughly contrived idea just to distract us from noticing that the government can't bring down inflation, interest rates or power bills. Are you as alarmed by this idea as I am? Yeah, for a number of reasons. The first thing is, is nobody can actually point to any wholesale corruption at a federal level that requires this added level of bureaucracy. And the problem is, is that the concept of corruption seems to have been corrupted. Corruption these days seems to be whatever the mob that I didn't vote for does is corrupt. Well, clearly that's not the case. But surely there are already mechanisms in place to investigate corruption if and when it occurs, whether it be Senate estimates, whether it be the National Crime Commission, whether it be the Australian Federal Police. I don't know that we need to spend $262 million on an added level of bureaucracy that sounds like it's only going to turn out to be another political star chamber like the, the New South Wales ICAC. Well, not just New, New South Wales ICAC. I mean, Stephen, we live in the era of winner-takes-all in politics. And, you know, I mean, th this could easily become politicised, as you suggested. But I think the worst examples of that are the FBI and the Department of Justice in the United States. I mean, they're just, they're just feral now. Well, absolutely. And, and this, thing, this thing is going to be worse because it is going to be blatantly political from the very beginning, uh, particularly with the crossbenchers demanding that all the hearings be public. Now, if you look at New South Wales ICAC, you can count on both hands the number of fair income prosecutions that have come out of ICAC, but the number of careers that have been strewn behind it with no case to answer in the end. If you look at Margaret Keneen, Mike Gallagher, uh, I guess John Sidoti to a certain extent, even Gladys Berejiklian. I mean, nothing has come of any of that yet, but their careers have all been ruined. Uh, for what? You know, and if, if we're going to turn this into a public uh, public hanging or a public uh, you know, marketplace where we can put people in the stocks, um, all it does is serves a political purpose where you throw enough mud at your political opponents, their careers are ended, and then it's years down the track that you find out they had no case to answer, and well, by then it's too late. Yeah, well, you mentioned the fact that the, the, all these Senate crossbenchers want to make them public hearings, which, you know, I, I, like you say, it sounds like a show trial sort of proposal to me. But also the content of these investigations is, is really dodgy. I mean, we're not talking about specific acts of corruption. We're talking about potential corruption, mm. aren't we? Yeah. I mean, it, it all sounds a bit Kafkaesque. Well, particularly when you look at some of the things that the current government is pointing to or they used in the lead up to the last election, things like they call them car park rorts or, you know, sports rorts or whatever. I mean, ultimately, this was an exercise 
in ministerial responsibility. So you had uh, a bunch of bureaucrats said, let's spend money in X, Y and Z. A bunch of local members who came to the minister and said, hang on a sec, my electorate's missing out here. They put a case to the minister. The minister says, well, yep, OK, I see your point. I'll give you some of the money. But because it's not where the bureaucrats said the money goes to, they're alleging corruption. I mean, I would like to see more ministerial responsibility rather than less. Yeah, and it seems to ignore the fact that every three years we get to pass judgment anyway. Exactly. I mean, isn't that the ultimate sort of star chamber in the end? Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's supposed to be what representative democracy is about. If we're not happy with the decisions the government makes, we turf them out in three years. And if you look at the entire election campaign was, the previous government was useless, we voted them out. Well, now it seems to still be the previous government was useless and we're going to use that as an excuse not to do anything, but we'll set up a political star chamber so we can keep throwing mud at the former mob. So we still don't have to do anything. Oh, mate, I couldn't have put it better myself, Stephen. Well said. Now, let's talk about this Optus hack uh, in which the private details of 10 million Optus customers was illegally obtained. The hacker tried to extort ransom from Optus but failed. Now, you're an Optus customer, mate. I believe, uh, how do you feel about all well, this? Look, I'm a little bit sanguine about it. I, um, I got the email from Optus saying that, you know, potentially my details are out there in the marketplace. Now, I've since swapped my uh, licence uh, over from New South Wales to the ACT, so I don't think my licence number is out there uh, as it is. But um, look, I, these things happen all the time. It seems to be regardless of how, how great a safeguard you put in place, you're still going to fall victim to these things. Uh, the PR exercise after the event has been pretty appalling. There's no two ways about that. But look, at the end of the day, um, I think... These things are going to happen. Uh, I'm not happy that it's happened, and I hope that there's no further ramifications for myself and you know, the 10 million other customers. But I, I don't know what more can be done about it after the event. Yeah, that's true. And I, I think this sort of, a few years ago, this sort of personal details might have been dangerous in the hands of the wrong person because they might have been able to hack into your accounts in some ways. But generally, most accounts these days are through multiple devices, and it's, it's, it's not so easy to hack. Yeah with ill-gotten uh, personal details. I'm more, you know what I'm more worried about is all these cameras that are appearing all over our cities. <laughs> I mean, talk about privacy. I mean, what what do you think is going on there? It's starting oh. to look like Beijing in downtown Sydney these days. Look, I've always been an advocate of, you know, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear. But at some point, you know, you'd like to at least be able to have a shower in peace, maybe. Because uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, nobody seems, needs to see me in the shower, let me tell you. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it is getting a little bit over the top. And I think it's become, because we've become so risk averse, and nobody wants to take responsibility for anything anymore. We've got to have this cotton wool society. And it's it's the nanny state looking over our shoulders because we can't be expected to be adult enough to look after ourselves anymore. And I, I think we've got to take responsibility for creating that society that has allowed the authorities to become like that. Um, how we put the genie back in the bottle, that's the big question. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the most disturbing sort of social developments of recent years is when whenever a crime is committed in public, People don't go in to help. They whip their phones out and yeah. stick it up on Instagram. Exactly. Yeah, and that and that's probably the saddest thing to come out of this is that, you know, once upon a time we were the kind of person that would help our fellow man. Now we're, we're happy to, uh, I guess, revel in others' pain and, and try to make some notoriety out of it with a YouTube account or Instagram or whatever it is these days. Well, speaking about revelling in other people's pain, how about this story that the ABC broke about Hawthorne AFL coaches Alistair Clarkson and Chris Fagan I think this is 
utterly reprehensible the way the media has treated this. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and look, let's state off the bat, nobody condones the alleged actions. Now, if, if it's true that these blokes did what they say they did, it's reprehensible. But, you know, what about the, the procedural fairness? What about natural justice? I mean, these blokes, their names, and again, it's coming back to like we were talking about with ICAC. These blokes' names have been smeared out in the public domain. If it turns out two years down the track that there's no case to answer, well, how do they build their reputations after the event? Well, it used to be the case that defamation law discouraged people from just, you know, jumping out of the gate and making these allegations. But for some reason, Stephen, the publishing industry has just started to ignore the, the possible consequences of defamation actions, partly because... I think once someone's been smeared, it just it just stays that way. Absolutely. And I think my understanding is there's been caps on the amount of uh, punitive damage for defamation these days, too, which obviously uh, encourages the behaviour. But I think the other thing, too, is, is when you look at and the AFL is a classic example of it, because I don't think there's a more woke sporting code in the world. Uh, the media is much the same way. It's more about, well, we, we will uphold our woke credentials and bugger the consequences. You know, so I don't think they care if they've got to pay out defamation payments at the end, they drove that woke cause. Well, they did. I mean, they're, they're being hoisted on their own petard, as the saying goes. But it, it's actually got a little more uh, interesting today. The Herald Sun is now reporting that the people who made the original allegations are actually reluctant to testify before the AFL's investigation. Now, this, this, is, this casts very serious doubts on the veracity of these allegations, don't you think? Well, and not only that, but it also appears that the, the investigation so far, or the allegations are based purely on the hearsay, or, or not hearsay, but on, the, on the, um, the say-so of these particular individuals. There's been no verification, no cross-checking. They haven't interviewed anybody else to say, hang on, did you see this stuff going on? It's purely, this guy said it happened, so we're going after the perpetrators or the alleged perpetrators. It's disgraceful. It is disgraceful because we already have the, uh, the the scaffolding in place, the legal scaffolding in place to deal with this sort of stuff. As far as I can see, this is just a case for the Fair Work Commission. Yeah, well, that's right. Exactly right. Yeah. And, and as I said, I mean, if, if it turns out these allegations are true, well, they're disgraceful and they're reprehensible. And, and you know, somebody needs to uh, be punished for that. But you're right. I mean, the Fair Work Commission is, uh, is the place for these kind of things. And I think that's the problem is we forget that in the modern era of sport, where we've turned it into a commercialised entity, it is a business. These people are employees like you and I are at the businesses we work at. Exactly. And not only uh, just employees, but employees in one of the toughest workplaces in the country. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it actually, you know, without wanting to belittle the allegations that are being made as if they're true. I mean, you do expect footballers to be to be pretty tough. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but having said that, I mean, we've again, we've gotten to a point now where we pay these blokes exorbitant amounts of money. Uh, they have way too much time on their hands. They've been told that they're victims and they deserve this amount of money because, you know, I mean, the argument that's a lot of, and I'm, I'm a rugby league fan, and the argument that's made in, in favour of rugby league players is, oh, but they're too stupid to get a job anywhere else. Well, my <laughs> argument is, what about the bloke who's too stupid and can't play football? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I wound up as a TV host. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, now, you might recall that a few weeks ago, Green Senator Maureen Faruqi said she couldn't grieve the death of Queen Elizabeth because yeah. she was, quote, the leader, the, the, this is Queen Elizabeth, was the leader of a racist empire built on stolen lives, land and wealth of colonised peoples. Yeah. 
Now, our uh, our good friend Pauline Hansen replied to that saying, um, pack your bags and piss off back to Pakistan. Yep. Now, this story is back in the news today because Senator Penny Wong has thrown her weight behind Faruqi saying she often heard that type of bigotry as a newly migrated kid in the playground, which if it's true, is very sad. That's yep. not the sort of thing a kid should hear. But that's not the same as what uh, uh, Pauline Hansen has said to Faruqi. I mean, Faruqi has deeply offended someone who is of high value to the, to a lot of people in this country. You can't compare the two, can you, Steve? No, and there's a couple of points here. I mean, as somebody that comes from an ethnic background myself, I understand that real racism is a thing and it needs to be stamped out. But I think real racism is being diminished because of this kind of rubbish, where if you listen to Penny Wong's speech, she asked the question, how long do you have to be in this country and how much do you have to love this country before you become Australian? Well, the question is not how long, but the question of how much you love this country, I think, is incredibly important. Important. And that's the point that Pauline Hanson's making. It doesn't matter how long you've been here, but if you clearly don't love Australia, maybe this isn't the place for you. And that's not to say that, let's for the argument's sake that Australia is the worst place in the world. Well, if that's the case and you don't like it, maybe there's a better place for you. Indeed, indeed. And, and also, I mean, while we're on the topic of, of racism, I actually went to Canberra for the uh, maiden speech of Jacinta Nampajimpa Price. Yep. Uh, in the Senate. It's one of the most moving speeches I've ever heard in an Australian parliament or anywhere in Australia for that matter. And it was a, a genuine heartfelt appeal for uh, the, you know, to improve the lives of some of the uh, most disadvantaged people in Australia. And the convention in the Senate is that all senators after the maiden speech um, approach the, the, the person who delivered the speech and shake their hand and yep. wish them well. <clears throat> Penny Wong, the, the, uh, the leader of the Labor Party in the Senate, just jumped up and left the Senate immediately. So any any uh, sort of um, claim to, you know, being on the side of anti-racism and on the side of the disadvantage from Penny Wong kind of rings a bit hollow to me. Yeah, and isn't it interesting that people like Senator Price and Warren Mundine and these kind of people who are actually have been out at the coalface, seen the real problems in Indigenous communities and have worked their lives to fix them are the ones that are uh, ostracised by the woke do-gooders from the inner city parts of Sydney and Melbourne who have never seen a bit of red dust in their life. Um, it's just extraordinary that those who have spent their lives really working towards closing the gap and improving the lives of Indigenous Australians in those remote communities are the ones that are ostracised, but the ones that have got no idea are the ones that are lauded as heroes. It comes back to the Corruption Commission, doesn't it? I mean, Canberra's just so full of fake, fake solutions these days. Oh. Stephen, before you go, just quickly before you go, who's your tip for the weekend in the rugby league, mate? Penrith by plenty. <laughs> yeah, can you elaborate on that? <laughs> uh, look, I just I think they're a, they're a you know start to finish they're a brilliant side. I think Parramatta have had their big win, and I don't think they've got the firepower to take Penrith on. Oh, looking forward to it. Good on you, Stephen. Thanks for your time. See you next week, Fred. That's Stephen Senatiempo, the breakfast announcer on Canberra's Two Double C Talkback Radio. And before I go, you will recall on Monday, I criticised the ruthless and possibly defamatory way the ABC has treated former AFL, uh, Hawthorne AFL coaches, Alistair Clarkson and Chris Fagan. The ABC published a story alleging that Clarkson and Fagan had coerced some young players to leave their girlfriends and in one case for the girlfriend to abort her pregnancy. The original source of the allegations was a report commissioned by Hawthorne into coaching practices under Clarkson and Fagan, which was then leaked to the ABC. 
By describing all the alleged victims as indigenous, the ABC insinuated that Clarkson and Fagan were being racist, but didn't say, ex but didn't say this explicitly or examine if white players were treated similarly. The response from other media was shocking. Instead of questioning the veracity of the allegations, other journalists simply piled on. Herald Sun senior football writer Mark Robinson has since also obtained a copy of the Hawthorne report and today quoted from it, saying the allegations, quote, amount to human rights abuses, unquote. Another anonymous coach said Clarkson and Fagan operated the football department, quote, like the Russian mafia, but didn't elaborate what that meant. Sounds, sounds bad though, right? Robinson later also pointed out that, quote, it is not possible for the Herald Sun to independently verify the claims or assertions made in the report, and the paper does not suggest they are completely true and accurate, unquote. Right, so why publish them then? These are allegations of the most serious nature and you can't verify them? Has it occurred to you that they might not even be true? Again, as I said on Monday, I'm not saying the allegations are not true, but this remains a distinct possibility. Given the gravity of the allegations, the demands, the demands decency, that demands decency and restraint until the truth can be established. Robinson himself adds another reason to be skeptical about this story. He said in the Herald Sun yesterday, quote, the First Nations families who have made allegations against ex-Hawthorne coaches have serious reservations about being interviewed as part of an independent investigation into the claims. Why would that be, do you think? Robinson either didn't ask or isn't saying. Well, that's it from me. Thanks for watching. Don't forget to tune back in at 8pm tomorrow for the great Alan Jones giving a voice to the voiceless here on ADH TV. And I'll see you straight after him at nine o'clock. Good night.